If you turn with me to uh, the passage on which today's teaching is based, it comes from Matthew chapter 6, and uh, I'll be reading. It's also printed in your bulletins as well. Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 15. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And this is God's word. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Uh, I know uh, it's Mother's Day. It's, uh, there's an accident on Lincoln Drive. It's pouring rain outside. So for those of you who came here and made your way out here from, from all different places, I really appreciate uh, us coming together as a body and worshiping together. I know some of you from very far out for those of you listening on the podcast, and because you couldn't make it out, thank you for listening, um, because we're actually starting a new series. It's a mini-series. It's part of the same series. Uh, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I'm going to do a little, something a little bit different today. I'll be, I have a series of notes, and uh, notes are scripted, and, and uh, you know, you, you pastors, they all around the world, right, they, they vigorously prepare uh, these things, but today I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit off the cuff today. Um, because this is a passage that we should really internalize and be able to share from not only personal experience and struggle and trial and pain, but also just because, hey, it should really be deeply personal to you. So the notes are here in case I blank out, right? Um, and uh, I'm kind of making a game time decision here, but I'm going to share with you at least uh, all that we can gather at least in a 30, 35-minute period about what this passage is, Okay. And it's a very important passage. You know, Jesus is uh, preaching on this, in the Sermon on the Mount series. We've been talking about Jesus, teaching about what it means to be uh, in the kingdom of God, what it means to have kingdom values, because when one administration departs and replaces another administration, uh, the leader of that administration usually begins by propagating and sharing his values. And so it's very important that uh, his disciples were following him uh, hear about what these kingdom's values are. And we get to this part in the Sermon on the Mount where if you look in Luke chapter 11, Jesus' own disciples ask him, teach us how to pray. What does it mean to pray? Teach us how to pray because everyone else's uh, mentors are teaching them how to pray. And so that's the context. And in Matthew chapter 6, the part that we didn't include in this part of the passage here that you read today, verses 1 to 4, Jesus begins to talk 
about engaging with the poor, our generosity, our charity towards others. And verse 5, he says, and when you pray, right, he says, you know, he, con- he concludes by beginning this teaching on prayer, and when you pray. Mainly what he's saying is, if you love the city, if you want to get engaged with your community. There are people in our world today very, very socially engaged. And Jesus says, I know you want to help the poor. I know you want to give. And I know you do give. And I know you want to learn about giving. But what he says, you cannot separate your charity, your generosity, your engagement with the community, your social engagement with a deep dependence on God the Father, with a deep dependence uh, through prayer. Because just engaging in the social uh, needs of the city will wipe you out. It will burn you out because it's endless until Jesus returns. But what he says is, I want you to connect and engage with the mission of God. And so basically people who pray to God, people who pray to the Father, are rooted even more in social engagement and in the community. And Jesus then here gives us a model of prayer. And that's what this passage is about. The Lord's Prayer is what he concludes with, at least in today's teaching. So we're going to walk through this, and it begins in three points, right? Um, we're going to call it, I, I don't use acronyms a lot, but I'm, it, just, it just happened to be that way. Um, it's MAP, right? Let this be a MAP, guide for you. The motivation for prayer, right? Uh, that's why we pray. Why do you pray? Uh, the application of prayer, right? That's the what, what is the Lord's Prayer? And then the power of prayer, right? The power of this type of prayer. That's the, how do you pray like this, right? So the motivation for our prayer is the application for, of our prayer and the power then to be able to pray in the way that Jesus is calling us to do it. So first we're going to look at the motivation of prayer. And uh, Jesus, he, he goes through three models. He shows us three very uh, simple models. And if you go with me verse by verse, verse 5, he says, and when you pray. Do not be like this. Verse 6, he says, but when you pray, do this. And then verse 7, he says, and when you pray, do not do this. So he's giving us three models, right? And we're going to look at all three models first. The first model uh, is, and they all teach about us about the motivation for why we pray. The first model is verse 5. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. Basically, in the ancient times, street corners, he's not talking about 16th and market. He's not talking about 18th and market. You know, uh, sometimes you see people kind of hanging around and they got the billboards and they're praying and they're saying all these kind of things. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying don't look like a fool, don't look like a fanatic, don't look crazy. That's not what he's saying. The street corners where people gathered. The street corners in the ancient times were where roads converged because, you know, they didn't have the systems of construction and city planning the way we do today. It was developing at the time, right? So these street corners were the places where people gathered. They came together, public settings. And he says, don't pray like those hypocrites in the synagogues and don't pray like those people who are standing in these street corners. In other words, these people love and are able and capable to pray in public settings and in formal worship. These people are the ones who are absolutely very vocal and emphatic and very, very worshipful in the public settings. But they have no inner intimacy nor dependence on the Father. That's why he calls them hypocrites. He says, don't be like them. 
These people have no dynamic, real spiritual, inward character, he says. There's no dependence on God. Now, then he goes into uh, another model. I'm going to look at verse 7 here. He says, when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing. If you look at commentaries, um, they'll tell you that the word babble here in verse 7 is a Greek word that is very, very sparsely used. In fact, it's not only just used one time in the entire Bible, it's used this one time in all of ancient Greek history, at least known in literature. It is the only time this word is used in a recorded fashion uh, in ancient Greek literature. So it's a very sparsely used word. And yet Jesus uses it, and he says, don't babble, and it kind of connotes um, almost like a nervous, babbling is the right word, I mean, a nervous, frenetic uttering of words used as prayer. Why does he say this? He uses the word pagans. He says, don't babble like the pagans. So verse 5, he's talking about the religious, people who are standing in the street corners in formal worship. They know who they're praying to, and yet their prayers have no intimacy with God. But then in verse 7, he's talking about the pagans. He's talking about the irreligious. And he says, don't pray like them. They just babble. The word pagan there uh, in the Greek is ethnikos. It can be used uh, to, on one hand, you could use that word and it would say, well, he's talking about the nations, like all the different nations of the world. And that's, it is used in that context. But it's also used, if you, take a, if you look at the nuances, it's also used to connote people who are worldly. They are like all the other nations of the world. They're very worldly. They're cosmopolitan. Their, their desire is to just be influenced by the thinking and the living and the lifestyle habits of the world. He says, don't babble like them. You know why this is important? We live in a world today where the entire world, most of the world today, views and wants to deem themselves, our younger generations especially, deem themselves to be spiritual but not religious. And so prayer is ingrained in everything. Now, if you've ever gone to any type of leadership training in your work, in your companies, they'll send you to management training, uh, executive training. They talk to you about meditation and the importance of meditating during the course of the day. What are they doing? Jesus is saying they're babbling. Uh, in these uh, sessions, they'll talk about um, uh, incorporating it in sports, incorporating it in your lifestyle. Take a breath. Meditate. Visualize the things that you want. Visualize what is your goal. Visualize the end. Move towards it. See yourself going through it. Meditate and pray. Our world today believes, just like the religious, Jesus calls them hypocrites. Why? Because mainly what he's saying is, hypocrites are people who have no inner dynamic spiritual character or relationship with God. And so there are very visible prayers, but there's no inward relationship. And mainly when you do that, you're doing that as a way of getting something from God. You're approaching God as a king, and there's no intimacy, and so you're coming to him and you're saying, I need these things. Hypocrites are filled with prayers of petition because there's no inner worship. You're using it to build your self-image. When you pray like that, it feels good. When you pray like that, it feels refreshing. If you've grown up in Asian contexts, they'll take you to long sequences of prayer 
right, uh, in a given day or evening, and, and when they're done, they feel great about that. It's exhilarating because there's a sense of accomplishment. You know why? Because that type of prayer, the prayer of a hypocrite, is always performance-based. It's based on your intensity. It's based on your rapidity. It's based on your duration. It's based on the way you pray. It's based on who you pray with, you see? It's all works-oriented. It's all performance-based. But he says, but the pagans are doing that too because they're visualizing. They're thinking about their agenda. Their meditation is all about what they can get. Regardless who or what they're praying to, it doesn't matter. It's about their agenda, their purpose, their meaning, their significance. So they're praying also for meaning and significance, and they're also praying to build up their self-image or a sense of some sort of sense of piety towards superiority. You see that? And that, as a result, it breeds self-righteousness as well. Whether you are religious or irreligious, verse 5 or verse 7, whichever spectrum you fall, kind of tend towards or fall into, Jesus is saying these people are praying essentially not to God to get more of God, but they're going to God to get more things, to improve themselves, to get what they want. And that's very important because in verse 6 he says, but when you pray, go into your room, close the door, Pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Now, here, Jesus is not giving us the method of prayer. He's not saying the only type of prayer is the type of prayer, if some of you may have grown up and your parents have told you, because of what the Bible says here, you need to go find a prayer closet, a place where you close the door, lock yourself in, and pray for a while, and then you come out, and, and it's kind of like it's a whole new day, right, or something like that, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is talking about a model. He's saying, develop an intimacy with God in private. You know, we've been doing Metro for seven years, almost seven years. And in these seven years, um, opportunities to pray are rampant. In fact, uh, one of the most encouraging things that I've seen uh, in the first three years and really developing into a culture is people during worship, after worship, during any given sequence or, uh, you know, coming together, you see people kind of putting their arms around. It's a wonderful thing. Pastors, I mean, you think about things that get pastors is when he sees people in corners just kind of standing by each other and praying for each other because it's unsolicited. It's not something that you're telling people to do, and they're doing it. It's a response of the heart. And it's a, it's a, there's a union with Christ and a union with one another that kind of comes together there in prayer right? And, and Jesus is saying here, in the same way, that happens when there is an intimacy on, there's a vertical intimacy and a horizontal intimacy that exists or that is assumed or that develops and is cultivated, and that's the reason why people are doing this. Jesus is talking about a model of prayer because whether you are religious or irreligious, we're coming to God to get things. Jesus is saying, when you pray, though, go into your room. Again, been a metro seven years. Most of the things, at least from my observation, most of the things that we do as Christians or as believers is primarily visible. When you give, it's visible. When you serve at the door, when you serve putting things together, when you serve on stage, that is visible. When you, uh, when you attend worship, your presence is known. That's visible. Jesus is saying, those things can easily become street corners for you. 
how do you know you have an intimacy with God? It's in your prayer life. That's how you know. How do you know that you and God have a relationship that is personal? What is a sign of that? It is your prayer life. If your prayer life is meager and your outward public spiritual life is major, is there intimacy? Generally, there is burnout. It's not, guys, this is not a, it's not rocket science. If the inner relationship isn't there, but the outer relationship is overwhelming, and it always is overwhelming, there are needs in the church and outside of the church that will overwhelm any single person. It's meant to be that way. My mentor used to tell me, because I said, wow, this is really overwhelming. And he said, hey, the church is in many ways a lost cause because God works through that brokenness until Jesus returns. You see? So you're always going to be overwhelmed. If your inner life, if your inner spiritual character and your inner prayer life is paltry and the outer life and the needs are rampant, you're just going to get run over. And people like that tend to be anxious. Anxious because of their agenda and no foundation. Anxious because depressed. Anxiety happens because there is an agenda that you visualize, right? Jesus says you are babbling. There's an agenda that you visualize and you need to get that. And you just, you're coming to God because God is going to help you get there in your mind. And he says when you're doing that, you're babbling. Anxious because you don't really know where you stand with God and you're praying to God because you ultimately want access. You want access and you think that by serving and by doing and being present, that is going to get you that access and you'll never know where you stand because that's not what God, that's not what a relationship with God is, see. And so you don't know what you're saying. That's where the anxiety comes from. That's where the anger comes from because you start to see people playing favorites in the church you see anxiety and anger because you're, you're, no, you don't know where you stand on one hand. On the other hand, you feel entitled to receive things because you are serving, because you are giving, because you are uh, sacrificing for others. But the cupboard is bare. That inner cabinet is empty, you see. And there is no relationship. There is no... Um, there's no inner spiritual character or depth. How you know, at least one sign, it's not the only sign, there are many signs. How you know, at least one sign of the fact that there is, uh, there is a relationship with God is that you have a dynamic inner prayer life. A dynamic inner prayer life. Those are the models. Right? Now, what is the application? Because right after this, Jesus goes right into verse uh, 9, and he says, this then is how you should pray. And he goes into what we have known throughout history as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, In our prayer of confession, we oftentimes recite this over the course of a month at a time. And it's a prayer that you're taught to remember. Um, We're going to go into this. In fact, we're going to go into this over the next six more weeks. Um, We're going to start to break down this prayer and really learn what it means to pray through each line, what Jesus is actually saying through each line of the prayer. So I'm going to kind of give you an overview. That's my job today, right? And uh, and our brothers, our pastors are going to come up, and uh, they're going to spend the next uh, six weeks outlining and defining then what each of these uh, components are really about.
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of break it down very simply for you, as simple as I can, all right? Um, and uh, if there's any complexity, just pardon me because I've gone off script, okay? Now, uh, verse 9 and 10 is all about what? Is all about worship. Is all about God. That's one way to look at it. And verses 11 to 13, the second half of the prayer, the first half of the prayer is all about God. Primary, foremost, is all about God the Father, right? And mission. The second half of that prayer, verses 11 to 13, you, then you go into the petition. Then you go into, well, verses 12 and 13 are really about make me become like you. So I'm going to break this down. Verse 9 is about what? God, and adoring God, worshiping God, loving God as our Heavenly Father. We're looking at, and we're going to break it down even further, but that's verse 9. Verse 10, then, is about mission and our submission. What does it mean to be submissive? Submissive means to put your mission under the mission of God, right? So, thy kingdom come, thy will be done is preeminent and foremost in our lives, right? Until earth and heaven come together, essentially, right? Now, then you go into the petition, Verse 11 is about petition, appeal. And then verse 12 and 13 are about make me more like you. That's how, the, that's how the prayer breaks down. Okay? Worship, mission, petition, transformation. That's what we're praying for. That's probably the simplest way to kind of break this down. And uh, verse 14 and 15, Jesus then says, one way you know, I don't know how many times as a pastor people have come to me and said, you know, I've prayed for a long time, and quite honestly, I've given up praying because God doesn't listen, and it just doesn't work. I've heard that many, many times. And uh, generally, and I can't, I can't indict anyone who comes to me and says that, but generally when I hear that, it usually is because, look at the first half and the way it's set up. Jesus is basically saying, before you even get to what you want, you got to think about who God is and what he wants. Before you even get to start asking about the things that you believe you need, it has to be submissive to who God is and what he desires. So we're going to break this down a little bit. Our Father, and, and one of the signs of that, verse 14 and 15 for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's crazy. If you think about what he's saying here, but if you do not forgive men their sins, in other words, if, you don't, if you're not forgiving, you're not forgiven, right? That's kind of harsh. But the reason why he's saying that, he's saying a Christian, a person who is truly intimate with the Father, is transforming into the likeness of what the Father desires and what will honor the Father and will be a part of the mission of the Father. And if you do that, then you will begin by advancing the gospel, and it begins with what? Forgiveness. You will demonstrate a character and a culture. You will model a culture of forgiveness. If you have not been able to do that, it's because you still have this sense of pride and superiority that you hold over other people in your life. And you have yet to then, remember the prayer, right, is forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors, right? You have not then reflected on the beauty and the cost of a forgiving father. So that is a sign, essentially, verses 14 to 15. So we're going to come right back to verse 9 again. Our Father in heaven. Now this is powerful, right? Right off the bat. Our Father in heaven. The word our, he doesn't say 
a couple things. He doesn't say, my Father in heaven, I want you to pray that way. That's not what he says, right? In the Western world, we try to individualize faith. And faith is deeply personal. Please do not get me wrong. Faith is deeply personal. You have to have a personal, individual relationship with the Father. But when you are born into the Father, you are born into His church. You are born into His community. And when you recognize that to the depths that you see that, Jesus says, you will pray, our Father, our connotes. Now think about it. We didn't come together as Metro because we all knew each other and we brought each other in and we wanted to be this one great happy. There are people here with a particular agenda for the church and they're not happy because the church should be this way. When I grew up, church was like this and I don't have that anymore. I'm very dissatisfied. When I was in high school, our youth group was like this and we don't do that here. When I was in college, I had this experience and that's what church should be and that's, I will not be happy until I have that. When I was, before I left the church and came back, this is what I remember church to be and I don't have that anymore and I will not be satisfied until I have it and we try to impose then our particular agenda about church rather than becoming into a body and being transformed not only by, by the word of God in faith in Christ gazing on the beauty of the father which is really what the first half of this prayer is about and letting that transform you through the context of the community around you now that's our, one word, it's about mission. Nobody chose each other to come here. We came here, that makes the church very, very different. I've said this many times, probably at the IRS some, that a lot of us view, because we grew up with that notion that uh, you know, loving community in the church is primary and foremost and you have to be welcoming. And I, I'm so grateful that Metro is that welcoming body that I always envisioned a church could be and should be. But that don't, please don't mistake that it's because I want us to be kind of like a kumbaya, a giant kumbaya session where we're all going to just enjoy being in each other's presence because we know that our human sinfulness and frailty will not allow that in some ways. There is always indwelling sin. How do you work that out? God brought us together, and he's, he brought us close together so that we will rub against each other, you see? There is a perfect particular agenda that comes with mission. We are here not to be a, you know, the church is not a museum uh, for saints, right? We're not here to be a country club where you, you buy in, and by buying in, that means that you have all these benefits, and part of this, that you are entitled to those benefits. That's not what the church is in terms of, hey, it's going to help me heal, and it's going to help me just get over my loneliness and my, my need for community in my life because I didn't really have that. Yeah, the church will give you that. The church will be a healing factor in your life. If the gospel is real and if the gospel is true and you're taking it in, of course it will do that. But the church is supposed to be not less than that, but more than that. It's intended to be a body of people who are being transformed into the likeness of God, in the likeness of his son for the glory of God. And we see that in the first half. It's about mission, God's mission. God's advance of the gospel. Jesus came with mission. And he says, I want you to pray missionally. I want you to pray with the kingdom in mind. Remember, this is all in the context of the values of the kingdom, right? And he's not, it's not like he just kind of slid this prayer in there. And by the way, here's when you, that's not what he's saying. It's all part and parcel of the mission of God. And so he says, our, but then he doesn't say our king. Because if you think mission, you think, well, then he's gonna, we're going to pray to a king, our king who art in heaven. That's not what he says. That's not what he tells us to pray. 
He says, I want you to pray to God as your father. Intimacy. Access. You know, uh, for those of you who are married, if your wife wakes you up at 3 in the morning and says, I'm really thirsty, can you get me a drink of water? This is what you do. 100%. You get it. And you roll over, right? That's pretty much what you do, right? You do it, right? But if your child, first of all, I think it's funny, your child runs into your room and says, you know, Daddy, I need a drink. You're like, oh, you get up and you go. I mean, you could do it, right? But... Uh, you get up and you go. Why? Because there's a certain type of intimacy that comes with that type of dependence. A child is the only one who can barge into his father who is a king, into his throne room when he's conducting business and will not be reprimanded or punished. In fact, that is what the father desires. Access. Intimacy. And so Jesus says, I don't want you to... But guys, this is huge, okay, because he says, our father, but then he doesn't leave out the kingship. He says, who are in heaven, power, glory, majesty, kingdom, kingship. Your father is the king of heaven, but he's your father. Our father, he says. I want you to pray like that. You probably missed this, but... The very nature of the fact that we're praying to a father blows away the notion of all the religious who come to God just as a king with their agenda and petition. And the very nature that we're coming to God as king who art in heaven blows away the notion of anybody who is irreligious. Because in our world today, religious people don't see God as father. They're not intimate with him. That's the problem. They're trying to get in. You see? And irreligious people are struggling with seeing God as somebody they need to obey. God is just a friend. God is a buddy. You know, God is just somebody I can come to and release and, and talk about my agenda, and he hears me. And so he's blowing away both of those notions in verses 5 and 7, and he says, in private, you have an intimacy that is dynamic with a living God, and you can come to him and not only appeal to him and pour out your struggles. That's the latter part of the prayer, Right? You can pour your heart out, and regardless of how busy he is and how much he's conducting business, he will stop, pick you up, grab you, and hold you and embrace you in his arms as your father. And he's got all the power and might to be able to answer everything it is that you desire. Well, if he doesn't answer, it must be because he's also just as wise as that. That's what he's saying. Our Father in heaven, worship, hallowed be your name. To be hallowed means to be sacred, to behold somebody as sacred, to behold their beauty and love them and come to them just because they're beautiful and glorious. To be able to say, our Father in heaven, you are worthy, you are beautiful. We gaze at the beauty of God and we adore him for his beauty alone. In other words, what he's saying is, I don't want you to just appeal to God because he can do it. I want you to come to God because he is beautiful. And I want you to just, you know, Martha and Mary, they're in you know, Luke chapter 10, right before Jesus teaches on this prayer in Luke. Martha and Mary are, are holding a dinner party for Jesus and his friends, his disciples. And they were very good friends of Jesus. 
and Martha's running around and doing all these things and busy and, and preparing. And at one point, you know, because she sees Mary and Mary's at the feet of Jesus, learning, you know, right? Because back then when rabbis, when they taught, it's amazing, it, it, that passage, and I don't want to segue, but that passage uh, is amazing by itself because Jesus is teaching a woman. You know, rabbis used to sit and teach back then. And here's Jesus sitting, he's teaching Mary, right? And Mary is just eating it up. She's just sitting at his feet and learning. And, and whenever Mary appears, she's always at Jesus' feet. Martha looks over, and she's busy, and she's preparing, and she just lost a hand. And she turns around, and she says, Lord, can't you see that I'm doing this? In other words, I'm doing all this stuff. Can't you see it? Acknowledge it. Tell her to help me, because this is for you. I'm doing all this for you. And Jesus, ever the counselor, in his gentleness, you know what he says? Mary has chosen what is better. Just sit and listen. Be intimate with me. A dynamic character that develops dynamic, inward, spiritual character and we come to God in verse 9 with worship and adoration. Verse 10, it's all about mission. Your kingdom come, not my kingdom come. Your will be done, not my will be done. How many of us here, right, pray only with petition about my kingdom come, my will be done? Right? I want to build heaven on earth this way, and this is the way it's going to be. But Jesus says, actually, you are to be surrendering. So it's about trust and surrender. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And he says, when you have that, when you have the relationship with the Father, when you see the kingship of the Father, when you see the mission of the Father, and you are submissive to all three, the, the, the intimacy with the Father, the, which is the relationship, the the." what is it, uh, the powerful kingship of the Father and then the, re- the uh, mission of the Father, then you come to him. Tim Keller, he always says this. He says, um, and I don't know if he's the one who coined it, but mainly what he says is, if you, it's something like this. If you know everything that God knows, then you would ask for the things that God wants, right? Then you go into verse 11, the petition. Give us this day our daily bread. That's, we ask for things submissive to the mission of God. The things that, that means we're praying about the things that the Lord would desire to make his mission advance, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done. Father, for your will to be done, this is what we need. Father, for your kingdom to come in advance, this is what we need. He's praying, we tend to trivialize this and minimize this to be praying for promotions and bonuses. And by the way, I'm not saying that that's necessary outside of the picture of mission and purpose. But we tend to trivialize this and and almost make this a very selfish prayer when Jesus was never prayed a selfish prayer. Jesus never demonstrated or modeled selfish prayer. So why would he do that now here? We tend to cut to verse 11 without thinking about verses 9 and 10. 
And so uh, he says, give us today our daily bread. And notice, he doesn't say, give us today our weekly bread. Give us today our annual bread, right? Give us today more bread for the year, right? Because what he's doing is, I want you, I know, the heart of God knows that the more we have and the more we hoard, and it promotes, it wouldn't have a sense of greed and a desire to be superior to others. We're going to use that to get other forms of beauty and access when when we're called to look at the ultimate beauty and the ultimate access that we have with the Father. And so when you do that, you will pray in trusting and knowing that God will give you everything you need for your day. Focus on that and pray for that, he says. We tend to pray for, you know, daily bread connotes manna. In the Old Testament, when the Israelites were wandering through the desert, God gave them daily bread, manna, in the desert. And that daily bread, was, uh, it was meant to be daily if you, if you held on to more than you needed, it would spoil and rot. Because it was God's way of teaching them in a barren land where there was no food available to just trust that God will give abundantly to you. And that's all that you need, no matter how bad the circumstances, no matter how terrifying the situation Verse 11 is about petition. Verse 12 and 13, verses 12 and 13 are about making us more like him. You are a forgiving God. A lot of us come into church guilty. Shame. In shame. Because they just, in their heart, something's telling them that they haven't lived up to God's standards. And that may be true. You may not have lived up to God's standards. But if you live in that guilt, first of all, it will spoil you. It will make you rot. It will build up, actually, a certain type of brokenness and humility in some ways, like you beat yourself up, self-pity. It's a humility that leads to self-pity and destruction. And it's also a humility that leads to an arrogance because you feel like now you have to look around and compare yourself with other people and how you fare compared to them. Well, look at that person. They're just as bad, and yet, how come they get this? And how come they get that, you see? That happens. We do that. That's just our hearts, our sinful, indwelling sin. And yet, Jesus says, that's because you don't trust that you're forgiven. That your father is a forgiving father. The difference between a father and a boss is what? Because they both provide, they both give, they both counsel, right? You spend a good amount of time with both of them, right? But the difference between a father and a boss is when you royally screw up, and you fall off the rails, and it looks like it's irrecoverable, you will still have a father, but you may not have a boss. (laughs) That's the difference. If you screw up at work, that boss will probably no longer be your boss because you won't have a boss anymore. But a father will know even more, and a father tends to look at the screw-ups in the family a bit more with care because that's the heart of a father. I know this is Mother's Day. Mothers are like that too. God's given us both. It's my little plug for Mother's Day. God's given us both, right, to give us a, a, a model. And they're still failed and flawed. We've got to be more forgiving of our parents because they tend to be failed and flawed versions. You know, I'll say this. This is what apologetics teaches you, right? You say, well, you know, my father was not that good. How am I supposed to picture a father when my father was not that good? 
Well, you know why? Because when you, you in your context, if you had a poor father, you still seem to know what a good father is supposed to be. And that's all that God is. You still have a semblance. What's in there? How do you develop that? You see that? Forgive us our debts. Make me forgiving. Like you. Verse 13. Not only will you protect us and deliver us and rescue us, not from situations or bad situations, but he says, lead us not into temptation. The word temptation there is the word uh, connotes testing and trapping. Keep me away from the things that will trap my soul and distract my soul and deliver us then from the evil one. Deliver me from, because essentially what you're saying is, I can't do this on my own. I can't live life one iota, one percent in a Godward direction unless you are there working on me, acting on me, guiding me, pushing me. In fact, Jesus says no one comes to the Son except for the Father who draws him. That's what he says in the book of John. Right? And the word draw, it sounds like, oh, like no one comes to the father, no one comes to the father except uh, to the son, except the father, right, who will draw him in, like, oh, come on, let me take you there. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's the, it connotes almost like a, you're wanting to go this way, and that guy has to throw a lasso and a chain and pull you against your will towards the father. That's what he's saying. Right? And so, I want to be more like you. I want to be forgiving like you. Verse 13, I want to be resilient like you. I want to be enduring like you in the face of temptation, in the face of suffering, because the evil one always torments and makes suffer and, make, and then tempts you in the process. He says, I want to be enduring like you. I want to be suffering. You know, you're not praying for suffering. You're saying, when I'm suffering, I want to be enduring like you. When I'm tempted, I want to be resilient like you. Make me like you. A transformed heart, a transformed life. I spent a lot of time on that. I'm going to wrap this up. Where's the power? Where's the power for this? And the power for this begins right there in that first line of the prayer, our Father in heaven. I'm going to cut to the chase here because there's a lot more I could say. Um, and I'm sure these gentlemen uh, in the weeks following will, will share it. But... When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was appealing to the Father. And what he says is, uh, Father, if, you, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. In other words, I'm going I'm to reinterpret what he's saying very, very simply. He's saying, I'm staring into the furnace of hell because that's where you are leading me. And it's overwhelming me. I feel like I'm going to die. It is overwhelming to the point of death. I'm seeing the weight of sin and the magnitude of everything that I will endure because I'm about to lose you. And so he says, please let that cup of wrath pass from me. But then he says, thy will be done. The reason why you can trust that you can pray thy will be done with power is because Jesus, who is the most powerful king that has ever walked the earth, still prayed thy will be done. And he suffered infinitely more hells than you will ever suffer on this earth, in this earthly life. He suffered infinitely more than you will ever suffer. He went all the way to the cross, and on the cross he said, my God, my God, it is the first and only time 
in the entire gospels recorded where Jesus Christ did not look to God and say, my father. He said, my God. Because at that moment in time, God has turned his face away from his son and has disowned him. Disengaged in a sense. Dis- disengaged because the wrath of God was pouring out on the son. And there, you know, theologians have said, in, se- in a sense, the Trinity was being torn apart because the father has basically turned away from his son. And the son then was suffering the wrath and penalty for our sins on the cross, for our sakes. Why? Because thy will be done, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus didn't pray, give us this day our daily bread. The father was his daily bread. And so he was starving, and that's why on the cross he says, I thirst. I'm hungry. Why? So that we can pray with confidence that God will provide everything. If the father is willing to sacrifice his own son, would he not be willing to give you all things? By the way, I didn't say that. That was the apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Would he not be willing to give you anything that you need? So if he doesn't, it's because he's all wise. It's not because he's not all-powerful. Who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus Christ endured the suffering of, of the penalty of all of our sins. And yet, though temptations abounded, he looks over to the criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. Down to the end, focused on the mission of God. Down to the end, submissive. He's not sitting here. And when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he wasn't doing, he wasn't sitting here and saying, oh, these nails are killing me. That's not what he was saying. Oh, the crown, do you see all this blood? This is disgusting. I'm throwing up. The feces running down the cross because I'm losing every faculty of my life. And yet, that's not what he was praying about. What he prayed was when he prayed, I thirst, he's saying, I've lost a father and I'm thirsting after him. One thing I ask, one thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord and inquire of him. That was the prayer of David in Psalm 27, 4. David who ran constantly on the run in caves, in the wilderness. David who had to face all the horrors of battle and as a king. David who had the weight of the world on his shoulders pointing to the greater David of Jesus on the cross, bearing the true weight of all of our sins, disengaged and lost in the wilderness on the cross because the Father has turned his face away from his Son. And yet he said, my God, he still called him my God, my God. Ever recognizing the power, ever recognizing the wisdom of God. He was reciting Psalm 22. He was still worshiping God. He was reciting Psalm 22. Look at the resilience of Jesus. Look at the endurance of Jesus. Look at the trust of Jesus. Look at the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at the forgiveness of Jesus. Look at the presence of Jesus. When you look at all these things in your life on the cross, then you see the beauty of Jesus. Does it not spring you into worship? That's what this prayer is about. If it truly brings you into worship, It will bring you into submission. All the parts of your life will then fall and kneel before God, our King, who is also our Father 
and you'll be able to do that in an intimate and glorious and beautiful way. It's not just when you respond here, because that is a public response. The response is when you are in private, in the deepest parts of your sorrows, in the deepest parts of your desires, in the deepest parts of your worry and anger and angst, that you can actually open up to the Father, and He, because He knows anyway, you know, Jesus says here, right? Verse uh, 8, don't be like those who babble. Why? For your Father already knows what you need before you ask, He says. You have that kind of intimacy. He is already in. You're asking to be in, He is already in your life and working powerfully. Will you trust that? That's what this prayer is about. Pray that prayer. We're going to begin talking about it this week, uh, this week, but on, on to the next six or seven weeks. Uh, my prayer is that Metro, guys, we're ending into our seventh year, and things get very serious now because we're growing and we're about to launch another site. This is not a time to be less prayerful. It is a time to be more prayerful. This is not a time to be arrogant about where we are. And guys, if you are doing that out there, that is not the character of this church, nor the character of its leaders, nor the character of the God we serve. It is a time to be even more prayerful, more humble, more on our knees, more petitioning in light of the mission of God and appealing to him because of his glory that we seek and desire and the face of God that we desire. It is the way we are intimate with him and knowing him and loving him. Will you do that? as much in your private life as you do in your public life. That is what honors God. Let's pray.